स्मार्ट कास्ट लिसनिंग टू अंदुस्तान टाइम्स प्रोडक्शन प्रॉट टू यू बाय एच टी स्मार्ट कास्ट अनबैश मोस्ट अनप्रिडिक्टेबल बिकम्स अडलाइन द मोस्ट वॉलेटाइल आउटफेजिस बिहेवियर सब्सटेंटिटीज Welcome to Grand Tamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. We are back after a period of many, many months with our Grand Tamasha News Roundup. As always, I'm joined by Sadanand Dumey of American Enterprise Institute and Wall Street Journal. Welcome back, Sadanand. Good to be back. And Tanvidan of the Brookings Institution and author of the book Fateful Triangle, your go-to resource for understanding all things U.S., India, China. Tanvi, good to see you on Zoom. It is good to be back, Milan. So today on the show, we are going to be discussing the triple whammy of crises facing India. We'll discuss the latest on India's contested border with China, the raging COVID pandemic, which shows very little sign of slowing down, and we'll end with a discussion of the latest economic data. Uh, another round of bad news for the Indian economy. But let us start by discussing the China issue. We have seen this week tensions along the India-China border escalate after Chinese and Indian officials accused each other's soldiers of firing warning shots. This was apparently the first time guns have been used along the contested border in many decades. Some, I would say, highly respected analysts now fear that India and China may actually end up involved in some kind of hot war, shooting war. Thunvi, uh, give us some context. What prompted this latest dust-up and you know where do you think the kind of frosty relations between the two neighbors stand um so milan the the right answer to kind of what prompted it is we don't know precisely uh, and part of that is because both sides as they have for quite a while are you know pointing out pointing to the other one as having started things what the indian side has said there was an initial burst of movement where Uh, there was some activity some kind of movement of troops and uh the indian side released a statement saying that they had that, that they, they in a particular part of the lac not where um some of these activities before have taken place in the recent months but they they had seen ch- chinese troop movements uh on the other side and that they took preemptive steps uh to tackle those now those preemptive steps just happened to result in india taking the heights at many at many key points and um and so the you know one question is uh you know it's quite plausible because the it is equally plausible that the chinese troops were moving and they might act, have actually and everybody is probably really sensitive at this point on the indian side that they don't want the chinese to make more gains um did, did they really they might have actually taken some steps and the indians said okay we need to go and uh you know take the heights and ensure that they don't take them that's entirely plausible it's also plausible um that you know troop movements take place and um india saw this as an opportunity to also essentially do a tit for tat or what would could potentially be leverage down the line for india in negotiations uh which is you establish a presence uh in kind of these areas some of which china claims as well and so the idea would then be that in the best of both worlds you then sit at the negotiating table and say we'll all move back now we also have some things you want us to move back from which is the heights the other option for india is since the chinese might say we this is not going to work like it has in the in the past 2013 was the prime example where we know that india had taken some tit for tat action 
uh, and uh, and kind of that had actually paid off at the negotiating table to get the Chinese to withdraw. Uh, but at, at, even if if the don't if the Chinese don't withdraw, uh, the point is then India is in a better tactical position. Now all this means though is that there's an expectation: will the Chinese actually now not retaliate in turn? And the thing is, as you keep bumping up against each other, particularly before winter sets in and movement gets a little bit more restricted, it's not impossible. The India-China war took place in October, November, but movement gets restricted. Is then you, you know, you, you. This is a, a key point, a, a duration of time where yes, there is always, and I think there's been a potential for escalation even before. Uh, there's a potential for escalation now. Uh, the foreign ministers met uh, in Moscow uh, recently. Um, the five-point statement, and I don't know who came up with, let's do five points, because all it reminded me of is Panchil, which is <laughs> remembered more in the in the breach than uh, than anything else. Uh, you know, release this thing. But I think wisely, everybody is saying, look, we've seemed to have seen this dialogue and them saying the right things. Uh, let's see where it goes. There are a couple of differences from what we've seen before. Uh, the Chinese released their own statement. It was a little less belligerent. It was a little like, you know, broadly put, passive voice, uh, you know, frontline, frontier troops must be um, withdrawn, not India must withdraw its troops. I think, you know, that's something that's a positive. Um, uh, there's so the less belligerence uh, and the fact that they actually released a joint statement. But I think it'll all be, it'll, it reminds me of what Steve Cohen uh, used to say, which is implementation hona chahiye, or for your non-Hindi speakers, there must be implementation. Uh, and so I think that's where we stand. Uh, we stand today. Um, uh, let's let's wait and see. Sadanand also this week in a separate development, uh, the Indian government banned a whole slew of Chinese apps. I think something like 118 in total. This comes on the heels of a previous ban of 59 Chinese apps, including TikTok, um, which was a big deal earlier this summer. You wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal in July that we'll link to, which said that the ban could, quote, seriously set back Beijing's ambition to replace the United States as the world's dominant technological power, end quote. Are you more or less confident in this possibility today in September 2020? First, I have to start with a confession that I wasn't really clear what PUBG was. <laughs> <laughs> but but apparently, apparently, it's a really big deal. Um, but, uh, you know, to, to get to your, to your question, you know, it's not as though India necessarily matters at this point in terms of a market. So, for example, the last year for which we had figures available, TikTok in India accounted for just about 1% or le- actually not even just about um, less than 1% of uh, ByteDance's revenues. That's the parent company of TikTok. Uh, but India does matter in, in several ways. Uh, the first is that by banning these Chinese apps, India signals to other countries that this is possible. And almost immediately, we saw Mike Pompeo talk about, the, talk about it after India, India's action. You see that TikTok is in trouble in the U.S. A lot of people are saying it must sell, it, sell itself to U.S. investors. You had noises about this in Australia and so on. So in terms of precedent setting, that's one thing that sort of affects the Chinese. The second is that this could extend beyond apps. Uh, and if, for example, India decides, uh, as seems likely from everything I'm reading, to keep China out of 5G, then that affects the global ambitions of uh, a firm like Huawei. And thirdly, and this is something that I came across while researching this column, is that 
there's this debate going on about artificial intelligence where some people say that what is really critical is the number of users. And so if you are locked out of the ability to use you know, tens of millions of, have access to data of tens of millions of Indians, even though those Indians may be providing you very little revenue per user, they're still helping you uh, hone your algorithms and so on. So for all these reasons, if China and Chinese apps are, are locked out, it makes a, it makes a difference to the, you know, the, the, the future of the sort of global ambitions of, of China as a tech power. So I don't want to exaggerate the point, but, um, but, I, but I do think that it is more significant than one would think at first blush merely by looking at revenues. So Tanvi, let me ask you about the role of the United States in all of this. You know, of course, as is his one, President Trump volunteered to mediate between China and India. I feel like each time he does this, it gets less and less news attention, which is probably a good thing. I'm not sure that many people really took it seriously this time. But there is some chatter, um, particularly amongst some Indians and Indian Americans that I've spoken with, that... um, one of the real concerns is that a Biden administration, if that were to come to pass after November, might try to establish some kind of rapprochement with, with China, some kind of G2 future that could ruffle feathers in New Delhi. Give us a sense of your own view as someone who has studied U.S., India, and China for, for the broad sweep of history. How might things change in a Biden administration? Or do you think you know, the change is going to be on the margins? So I think, you know, some of this comes from an impression that existed, despite actually how much uh, India and the U.S. did on the defense and security side in the Obama administration. There's this impression, and not just in India alone, in a number of countries in Asia, but frankly also uh, in the U.S., that because President Obama wanted a climate change deal, he... Um, you know, essentially looked the other way or didn't press China or try to deter them. This usually comes in the context of the South China Sea, but people will point to that as an example of, uh, you know, could have done more then. Um, and so there's this concern that that is, that is what a uh, Biden administration would do, that either because they will think that the Trump administration has gone too far uh, or because they will want to work on these multi, uh, these transnational issues, challenges like uh, pandemics and like climate change, that that logic will return. That and that you know the question is what will the Chinese ask for in return? And they'll say, well, we'll only cooperate with you, even though it makes sense for us to do it from you know our perspective. Um, uh, that we will ask you to roll back certain things. Um, so I think that is why the where this concern comes from. Um, and I think there's a you could probably add one more to that, which is this conversation that uh, some are having on both the right and left in in the U.S. about restraint, about you know why is that the, really the U.S. needs to focus at home and not uh, make these commitments uh, abroad. So I think that's the case of you know why people are concerned. I actually think though that there there are some I don't think this idea that we're going to go back to that 2012 2013 2014 period uh is correct. I I, I just think there's too much water that's flown under the bridge. Uh the Chinese don't help themselves with what they do and you do have interestingly on 
the left for perhaps different reasons, either because they're concerned about Chinese behavior vis-a-vis Tibet, Xinjiang, Hong Kong, or because of, say, uh, labor groups who are concerned about you know uh, uh, it from that perspective, that you do have concerns on the left as well. And then the democratic national security establishment, uh, particularly the younger generation, I think is, is also um, you know, quite tough on China. So I think it's going to be, the question is going to be with the Biden administration. Um, I don't think it's the question, I, I think they will still see China as a challenge. You could actually see a situation where um, some of the things, the differences in approach they take actually might benefit India. So one area it would benefit is the uh, couple of places that the Biden team has said is uh, we work better with allies and partners, take everybody along, uh, not do things like you know unilateral tariffs that end up end up hurting our allies and partners as well. Uh, but I think the other thing is if the Biden team is serious about investing at home, that is a good thing research and innovation in the U.S. A rejuvenated U.S. is actually a good thing, I think, for Indian interests vis-a-vis, uh, vis-a-vis China. So I think, but the question is, will it be tempting for a President Biden who tells himself, you know, I can convince Xi? And will the Chinese say we have a window of opportunity to offer him something he needs? But I don't think it's a given, and I don't think we're going to go back uh, to a more accommodative. Uh, it will still be competitive, and I think too much has happened uh, since I'll just finally say one thing. One shouldn't assume that a Trump two term, uh, yes, you know, I think Indians, uh, Indian Americans like that he was tough on China, uh, but the unilateral approach he took hurt Indian interests too. Second, the one thing we know about him is there's some things he has an instinct on, three things, trade, immigration, and alliances. If he actually feels validated in those, if he's reelected, um, that could mean it's, you know adverse effects for alliances in in, in Asia, which India will not benefit India uh, as it tries to deter uh, China. So I don't think uh, you know it. I, I don't think it's a given one way or the other. India will have to watch closely, but I think there are pluses and minuses to the China policy that both might take either a Biden uh, presidency or Trump another Trump presidency. So let's transition to our second uh, topic, uh, second happy topic, which is which is COVID. India earned the dubious distinction this week of surpassing Brazil for the title of the second worst COVID-affected country, accumulating more than 4 million total COVID cases since the pandemic first struck. Uh, on Thursday alone, in a 24-hour period, India registered more than 95,000 fresh COVID cases. Sadhana, let me start with you. How will history judge the Modi administration's handling of this public health pandemic? Um, this is going to sound like a cop out, but I really think it's—I uh, genuinely think it's far too early to say. Um, are we? Is this something that will be over in three months, or is this something that we're going to be struggling with for three years? Um, are other countries going to get on top of this permanently? Um, and, and so, so they're sort of, it's, it's hard to say at this point. Um, I will say that, um, you know, to Modi's credit, he has, you know, broadly, he hasn't been anti-science. He hasn't taken, uh, the sort of positions that we've seen Trump take on mask wearing or, or I think Bolsonaro sets the gold standard for craziness on this, um, particular topic. And so, you know, compared to some of the populists with whom, uh, Modi has been compared, uh, he's been sort of, you know, fairly on the sort of on the same end of the spectrum. 
and I think some of the people I've spoken with about this um, do feel that uh, India moved too late. And essentially, it lost the month of February when it was busy hosting Trump, uh, busy destabilizing the government in, in Madhya Pradesh. And that by the time the lockdown happened, it happened, uh, you know, it was already too late to actually uh, effectively implement uh, uh, tracing procedures. Uh, the other criticism that I have uh, found, uh, you know, found uh, convincing, and I, I think most people would agree on this, uh, is that the suddenness of the of the lockdown really turned out to be an, an economic disaster and caused a vast amount of misery. So, if I had to, st- you know, take a guess at how history is going to judge uh, Modi on this question, uh, I would say at this moment it does look like the major thing that we're going to remember. Uh, is the migrant crisis. And unfortunately, he doesn't come out looking very good because it really has all the hallmarks of this uh, impetuous uh, style of governance that doesn't really believe in too much planning, believes in big impact. And if he had actually succeeded in quashing the spread of the virus, then maybe he would have been justified. But in you know, as things stand, India has got the worst, both, worst of both worlds. He sort of ended up uh, really gutting the economy uh, without really without slowing the spread of the virus. So it's interesting just to go back to the first thing that you said because it somewhat contradicts the other narrative, which is in fact that Modi moved too early, that he insisted on a highly stringent lockdown when India only had you know 500 cases. And as a result, given where we are now with 80, 90, 100,000 cases a day, there is simply no appetite for any kind of serious lockdown because you had that window of opportunity and you used it too early. Do you, do you no, think so there's anything I, valid there? No, because I think that the 500 cases was because there was very little testing. And uh, again, at least sort of the folks I've talked to, people like Jacob John on this, uh, say that essentially the, the the this had al- it had already entered India by February. So you had the first early cases that come to, you know in, in Kerala, which were isolated successfully isolated, and then you had this other batch with these Italian tourists in Rajasthan and so on. So by the end of March, uh, even though officially India would have had only five hundred cases or five hundred odd cases, uh, uh, I believe that the reality it had, it had already spread in a way that made uh, contact tracing ex- extremely difficult. So, Thumbi, you know, you tweeted about an initiative that India has undertaken with Japan and Australia called the Supply Chain Resilience Initiative, the SCRI. Uh, you know, I guess my question is not so much about this effort specifically, but the more general question, has COVID brought India closer together with other countries in the region, like the Quad countries, say, who are also concerned about China's rise? So in which, in what ways do you think COVID and geopolitics have kind of come together to create uh, a shifting mood in Delhi? So I think, you know, it, it has had an impact. And I think partly it is a combination of China's behavior vis-a-vis COVID what COVID has made evident about supply chains, and third, Chinese behavior during that time in terms of regional assertiveness. So all three things, I think, elements have made a difference. And what they've done, I think, 
is whether it was the Chinese lack of transparency at the beginning or then, you know, um, using economic coercion, trying to use economic coercion to get other people to either let their people in or not institute travel bans. Um, I think there were always these kind of abstract ideas about, you know, what would a Chinese-dominated Asia look like? And now here you're seeing... Uh, between kind of the way they were they reacted to COVID, um, what they did at the WHO in terms of trying to shape and influence their reports, um, but also what they were doing in terms of regional assertiveness across the board, whether it was against Australia, India, uh, Japan, Taiwan, what they were doing in Hong Kong, uh, and then pushing everybody, uh, all the claimants in the South China Sea. All this is happening in this kind of first few months of 2020. And what it does, I think, is these abstract ideas about, it makes it very real. It's like, okay, this is going to, what China is going to be like. Um, and you could think that, you know, this is something Andrew Small said recently, that they, it, this is a missed opportunity for China, where they could have actually, having come out of it well, actually pointed to you at the US and others and say, look, we're actually going to be benevolent. We're going to come out. But, the, you know, I think Chinese actions have made real that you know, it is. It is. It doesn't necessarily stick to the rules. It's not transparent. You know, when you have somebody like former Indian Foreign Secretary and Ambassador to India, I think Vijay Gokhale wrote uh, a good piece on this in the New York Times, which is, and he, he linked it to COVID that they're showing us who they are, and uh, you know the fact that they. He also wrote, I think, in another article that it does matter that they're not a democracy. And usually, you didn't have Indian policymakers ever talk about the Chinese not being a democracy. Um, mattering as such. So I think it has made a difference in terms of making these challenges not abstract, but real um, because of Chinese behavior. I think on the supply chain side, what it's done uh, is, and for, this is for all these countries, a number of countries, India is a good example, had been talking about the fact that, oh, Indian pharma industry is way too dependent on advanced pharmaceutical ingredients from uh, China. What does COVID make clear suddenly? It makes clear one, that natural disruptions can occur. You just shouldn't be so dependent on one supplier. And not intentional disruptions, as in China wasn't blocking APIs, but just because of disruptions, because of COVID, you start realizing that these supply chain dependency dependencies could be real. And it's not just India who realizes, it's everybody else. People realize how dependent they are on medical equipment and how China could use it, you know, uh, um, not export enough, et cetera. And I think finally, because of economic coercion, what they've done with the Australians in particular, uh, which is, you know, the Chinese, the Australians dared to just ask for an independent investigation. And then, you know, having kind of essentially sanctioning them uh, and, and putting, making it harder for them, for the Aussies to, to export barley, beef and, uh, and uh, wine, I think, with the three things um, to China. Um, that this, I think, has brought together because this is happening a number of other places. So if you think about the supply chain resilience initiative, which is what Australia, India, and Japan are saying they're going to launch later this year and will welcome other like-minded, each of these countries in different ways, and particularly Australia and Japan, have very directly been affected by economic coercions from China. So do you really want to, this is a time, and that resilience means either onshoring or it means diversifying your suppliers. And I think what India will be hoping, hoping is, I think India wants it, kind of the best of both worlds, right? India wants to onshore most and diversify a little bit, but it wants everybody else to onshore less and diversify, including to India. And I think that, you know, and you guys uh, know 
have spoken like and written about this is at the end of the day whether india can successfully do that really and 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 be that alternative uh or that kind of uh, a place where people who have a china plus one strategy can go it really depends on what not just the announcements not just saying we are ready for business but um but whether you know it can actually um offer that business climate that that these companies and countries want so Savannah, you know one more question on covid um we haven't really seen major domestic pushback in a political sense when it comes to Modi's leadership on the COVID question. You know, just like in the United States, sometimes you just feel like there is this awful statistic operating in the background of a thousand deaths a day, and people have just, I don't know, in a way priced it in almost. Do you think that the pandemic is becoming kind of a non political issue in India? I mean, the real test of that is when we're actually going to see you know, maybe in state elections, right? So we don't we don't have what's our evidence for that. I mean, we had a recent poll in India today that showed that Modi's uh, approval rating rem- remains sky high. In fact, has risen. So that's certainly there. You know, I think this is something we've talked a lot about over the years. Um, in many ways, Modi is Teflon. He is able to survive things that would really have hurt any other politician. Uh, he's, of course, helped by the fact that the opposition is particularly inept and they're in the middle of their own uh, extended meltdown. Uh, he's also helped. Exactly. It, we keep extending it, it was, um, from 2014 uh, to 2019. Also, he's to also helped by the fact that, you know, the the media in India is quite tame. And he has not been attacked for this. Uh, the way I imagine he may have been if we had the sort of media we saw, say, in the last few years of UPA2, where, you know, there was a sort of uh, ability to really go after the government on television night after night and so on. Uh, the media is much, much uh, tamer right now. And then lastly, I think, and this is, you know, in, in, in fairness, there's some truth to this, a, a lot of people sort of say that, well, why blame Modi? I mean, we all know that India had sort of doesn't have such great health infrastructure, doesn't have that many doctors per thousand people and so on. And so I think as in many things, he benefits from just coming across as uh, well-intentioned, trying to do the right thing. And people don't really seem to judge him in terms of outcomes. Which I think is, you know, the, I mean, it's the greatest political gift, right? I mean, I mean, people around the world, leaders around the world, must sort of be hoping and praying that if, like, why, why could, why can't we have this? That we're sort of, you know, people judge us because of it, because they think we want to do good things as opposed to what we actually achieve. That would be a great, you know, like in all of our uh, yearly evaluations. <laughs> like, I really intended to, to, to do this book. But... <laughs> I to? meant well. Um, let's let's. This is a natural segue to talking about the economy. Um, you know, India recorded a nearly twenty five percent decline in its GDP last quarter, their worst performance of any G twenty country over the past couple of months. It's possible that these numbers could be revised further downwards in the weeks and months to come. Uh, Goldman Sachs now predicts a uh, 15% economic contraction in fiscal year 2021. You know, these are just sort of horrific, almost like mind-bending numbers. Uh, Rahul Gandhi quipped that, you know, Modi promised to end Corona in 21 days, but he ended jobs instead. Um, Sadhana, let me ask you first, you know, do we see any incipient signs from Delhi of, in terms of kind of fashioning some kind of more robust 
proactive I mean, economic you know, there's response. There's been a lot of criticism of to you know uh, of their response to COVID per se, right? And they've been uh, criticized for being somewhat miserly in their response. Um, they have done other things, right? They've done sort of they've they've moved in terms of agricultural reform, for instance. Uh, Tanvi talked about trying to roll out the red carpet for manufacturing to diversify. So it's not as though the um, you know they, they they claim that they want to sell a whole bunch of public sector companies, including Air India. I mean, we've been hearing about this for a while. So it seems to me that their response has been uh, it hasn't been non-existent. But it's almost as though it has not been particularly focused on the crisis at hand. And it's been, if you want to give sort of, you know, give the most charitable possible spin, it's been on using the crisis to, in fact, uh, push through some other reforms. Uh, other reforms which have sort of been pending that long exactly. economists have long been pushing for. Um, Dunby, you know, we've seen one major development, which is almost the, the breakdown in relations between the center and the states o over the issue of the goods and services tax, the GST. Um, by law, the center is committed to compensating the states for a period of five years to make sure that the states are kind of made whole, that they didn't lose money during this transition period to full GST implementation, and that the, that the, that the act would be kind of revenue neutral. Now the center is going back to say it can't pay up because of the shortfall in revenues due to a quote unquote act of God that which has spawned many, many memes. Um, is there a chance that this major tax reform, which was seen as a kind of generational reform, could fall apart? And if so, what impact do you think that would have on sort of brand India? So it'd be great to hear you. I mean, you've written about these, the, the kind of federalism issues. So it'd be great to hear you. Um, I don't want to turn it around entirely on you, but the three things I will say where, I think particularly in terms of where it might have an impact, um, particularly if you're looking at it from the outside, uh, which is one, you know, we, uh, what does it say about the commitment that the, uh, the central government's commitment? It made a commitment to these states. And that's linked to kind of the other thing, which, you know, whenever we talk to um, private sector, the private sector, one of the things you hear, number one, when you ask them, what do they want from to see in India? They say certainty, uh, consistency. And if now it looks like, well, because they don't know if the government's commitment can be taken seriously, there might be changes, there might be. And so suddenly, again, you're adding another element of, uncertainty into the business climate? What does it mean? And I think finally, the thing that I think, if it doesn't, you know, what does this do to states' appetite to go along with reform that's done on the central level? Which is, you know, any reforms that are going to be done, you need a certain amount of state buy-in. And if they say, look, you reneged, um, but, you know, you guys are the are more of the experts, so it'd be interesting to get your sense of this. So, I mean, the way I see it, Milan, very quickly, is that you know, there's, the, there's a legal aspect and there's a moral aspect. And uh, legalistically, the government, the central government may, in fact, have a point, right, that there's this special uh, cess and there's this fund that they have. And if there isn't money in the fund, then they don't have to pass it on to the states. But morally, they don't have any, they don't have a leg to stand on. And I think in politics... Uh, that matters. 
So I actually think they're playing with fire on this question, right? Because whatever the sort of legality of this, uh, the fact is that the states were given to understand and the people within those states were given to understand that they would be made whole, as you put it, over five years. And for the government now to turn around and, 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 and get all legalistic uh, will be seen with, by many people as a breach of faith and justifiably so. And, and it, frankly, it confounds me to see them take something uh, this potentially serious uh, in, in, in such a cavalier fashion. You know, Tanvi, I think the way I would respond to that is that, you know, there have been a lot of concerns over the past six years about the concentration of power in the executive and in the PMO. And often we then jump from that to talking about the erosion of uh, horizontal accountability institutions, whether it's the Supreme Court, whether it's the Election Commission, the Central Information Commission, the CAG, right? And we, we, we sort of all know the five or six um, worrying signs. But I think the other way of thinking about this is the kind of vertical accountability or relationship between the center and the states. And here is where actually this government got off on a relatively good foot by um, it got credit from some quarters for abolishing the planning commission, which had always been seen as a very kind of top down one size fits all, you know, where chief minister has to come with a begging bowl and so on. Uh, for accepting the Finance Commission's recommendations of devolving more untied funds to the states so that they could decide how they wanted to spend that money. Uh, what we're seeing now, I think, are signs that all is not what it's cracked up to be. So you had the 370 decision in Kashmir, right, the unilateral change of a federal relationship, um, that was one. Uh, I thought there was a data point in a piece that Yamini Iyer had uh, last week, which we'll link to, which showed that despite the central government accepting the Finance Commission's recommendations about devolving more tax funds, in reality, it never got anywhere close because the center kept adding so many cesses uh, which are these one-offs uh, that that accrue to the center. And now at GST, I think we're seeing a kind of real like vitiating of the kind of atmosphere between the center and the states. And, you know, even the fact that we're talking about some important states contemplating that they might want to revisit the idea of being a part of the GST, I think tells you um, how dire the the sort of straits are, right? So I think that 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 the initial moves towards greater decentralization, devolution, cooperative federalism now um, uh, are, are really kind of stand, you know, quite, quite diminished. Um, you know, Sadan, on the kind of broader economic story, just to go back to that for a moment, you shared a, a pretty bleak column by uh, Vivek Dehegia in, in Mint this past week that said, you know, uh, people have been arguing that India's economic story has hit a roadblock, but I would argue that maybe it's completely over, you know, and Subramaniam Swami, um, the, the unpredictable, shall we say, BJP MP has also castigated in pretty vivid terms the, the government for its economic mismanagement. Do you think that we are entering a new chapter that we've kind of had this 30 year golden economic era that's come to an end? I know, I noticed that each 
day this week, you've been tweeting charts and tables from Vijay Joshi's excellent book about India's economic evolution. Do you sense that we've kind of now come to the start of some new era that that is that is marks a real shift from the last you know? Tw- well, first of the Swami part, right? I mean, of course, he has the magic wand. Make him finance minister. So we sort of so we we (laughs) the solution to all of India's problems. Take take his criticisms with a with a grain of salt. Um, you know, I thought Vivek's piece was actually it 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 raised a really interesting question, right? Because for so long now, since the sort of advent of reforms, we have you know assumed that there if you if the if the government just does a few of the right things the underlying conditions in india are such the distance from the frontier the youth the youthfulness of the population uh, the existence of an entrepreneurial class the existence of an educated elite and and, and a large number of engineers and so on that india would be able to grow at a rapid rate if not double digit somewhere close to it say 8% or so on uh, for the indefinite future and that of course would have you know enormous implications um, for the country and the world. And my own sense is that it's too early to assume that COVID has simply knocked India off course. Um, but I think it's a conversation worth having, right? And and it's, it's certainly worth revisiting. The one idea that's worth revisiting is to what degree has the uh, overly optim- as a potentially overly optimistic view been shaped by those eight excellent years India had, 2003 to 2011. And to what degree have many of us assumed that that 2003 to 2011 period was kind of what we could uh, aspire to and return to? And is that realistic? And from everything I'm reading, it's certainly not realistic in the short term, act of God and so on. But the big question uh, uh, is, is it going to be re- is it re- going to be realistic to regain that in the long term? And I think on that question, we're going to see a lot of a, a lot of interesting debate in the coming uh, years. Yeah, I would just point out that you know the economist Pranjal Bandari, who I think is one of the best people to listen to on on the state of the macro economy, has been sharing this graph of India's potential growth rate. And um, how it's shifted from being steadily at seven percent to then falling off to six percent, and now the medium-term projections is that it actually is plateauing at five percent. Which, um, when you think about uh, you know a two percentage point um, dip in um, potential growth, is 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 a pretty stunning, a pretty stunning development that has all kinds of you know larger societal, political uh, ramifications uh, that go way beyond the economy. Let us end as we always do um, by uh, first starting out. Um, Thunvi, maybe I'll throw this question to you. What is an underreported news story coming out of India that we should be paying attention to, but maybe not be as tuned into right now? So this time, I'm actually going to. I usually don't, in fact, talk about kind of foreign policy stories, but I, I, I think um, uh, something related to India, which kind of got lost. It's on the India-Japan side, which is Shinzo Abe's departure from the kind of scene and the impact that might or might not have. And um, the turn in India-Japan relations came 
prior to him. I mean, there, the other administrations in, in Japan have, uh, have shared this idea, but there's no doubt that whether it was with the Manmohan Singh government or the, or the Modi government, um, that he has really kind of turbocharged not just India-Japan relations, but also j- the Japanese uh, role in Asia in a way that has benefited India. Uh, including his, you know, their big connectivity plans, but also willingness to do things more on the security front, whether that was, you know, the Quad doing bilateral now, India has um, Air Force, Army and uh, maritime exercises with the Japanese. So I think, you know, what the impact of that might be, uh, and it's related to, you know, Japan has helped India, has been a force multiplier for India, as it doesn't have that capacity, partly for the economic reasons in certain countries, in certain countries, it's just easier for Japan to do these things. And so I think, you know, that's going to have, it's not, it got lost in all the China things, but I think that's something, you know, that that, that, that needs to, and related to that is this point that, you know, they had, uh, Bhoti and Abe had this phone call and uh, India agreed to essentially like a military logistics uh, support agreement. And I was joking on Twitter that, you know, I mean, the U.S. knows this, it took years to get one of these signed with India. And since the U.S. is, you know, and people talked about, you guys remember this, there were talks about, you cannot sign this. There will be marauding soldiers or sailors and soldiers, American coming to the port and taking away our women. Well, uh, now, you know, India seems to sign one of these every six months. It has them with like, uh, you know, uh, latest with Japan, but also Australia, Singapore, France, South Korea. Uh, so I, I think that's, you know, it is, it's just, I don't even know if it's covered. It's a good thing that it's not getting much attention. Must but, check in um, on those sailors. Yeah. <laughs> so, Sadana, do you, is there something out there that you think deserves more attention than it's getting right now? Well, it's kind of, it's not, it's not that it's getting no attention, but I think that, you know, in this whole sort of ridic- ridiculous uh, Sushant Singh Rajput I knew it was uh, only a story. matter of time before we got there. Yeah. Um, no, but I think the part that is actually interesting there is the relationship between the BJP and the Shiv Sena and where it's headed. Uh, the Shiv Sena, I mean, first of all, it matters because this is Maharashtra, uh, the richest, most industrialized state, and the second largest state in terms of uh, Lok Sabha MPs. Uh, it also uh, matters because the Shiv Sena is the BJP's oldest ally. And so the question really is, is there space in India for two Hindutva parties? Uh, or even in Maharashtra, or are we looking at a situation where the BJP essentially uh, attempts to wipe out the Shiv Sena? So I think that's a really sort of interesting development with uh, long-term implications for Indian politics, which I haven't seen um, that much discussion of. Okay, now we end with who had the best week and worst week in India. Thanvi, any nominees for best week? Uh, you know, I, I was a, at a real loss to come up with a best week one this uh, this week. So I'm going to take for a change. I'm going to take a pass on that one. Well, I was at a loss too for uh, best week, but then I figured I'd just say Mukesh Ambani because he's the one person who always seems to be the <laughs> <laughs> week. So when in doubt, um, just, just like you know, when in doubt, I just toss in Rahul Gandhi for worst week. But uh, so I've got my so so I have a I have a suggestion although it's a it's cheating because it's really about um, an Indian American although I think it could reverberate in India, which is this week Netflix named an Indian American Bella Bajaria the head of its new global television division. 
which gives her executive oversight over all of the shows in development at Netflix. And she is the one responsible for greenlighting Indian matchmaking. So if God you like Indian matchmaking and you want more of it, it is apparently on the way because an Indian American is in charge. But, you know, I will say it is if, if, if you were asking me about a best week that could involve Indian Americans, I do have one. I actually think Indian Americans are having voters are having a great like month. If not, I don't think I've ever seen both the parties pay so much attention to a set of voters who aren't large in number, but uh, have kind of, um, you know, uh, disproportionately you know, cam- uh, provided campaign finance in the past. But this time. Perhaps because of both that uh, the Republicans are actually making a play for them and Trump himself. But second, um, because of how few votes could make a difference in some of these swing states. That uh, I mean, it's just, you know, Ganesh Jatorti uh, tweets from the Biden campaign and, you know, Kimberly Guilfoyle coming up with a video, uh, not to mention those strange Tommy, Tommy Lennon thing. Um, that came out, but it's just I I don't think I mean uh, you know uh, we'll we'll find out, including some data being next released next week, Milan, that you could probably preview for us. But um, it it is quite significant to see uh, to see this much attention being paid. Okay, we end I guess on a sour note. Worst week other than the the the, the future rise of Indian matchmaking. Uh, any any nominees, Tanvi? Uh, yes, um, and it it is a combination of I don't you know I don't know if it's the worst week or kind of Indian news channels or if the worst week is the Indian public that gives these guys high ratings, but at a time when uh, and you know at a time when the trifecta of crises that you you pointed out are playing out. Uh, maybe it's a bread and circus sort of way. Maybe people need a distraction, but this is affecting real lives and whether for political reasons, whether for ratings reasons, it's just been, um, you know, kind of insane and watching whether it is, you know, the, that poor mailman who was surrounded uh, by uh, TV cameras. Uh, I mean, what did the mailman do to deserve paparazzi? Uh, but as I can't remember who it was who pointed out, uh, you can blame the news channels all you want, but this is getting ratings. People want this. Um, and so, I mean, I, I how do you not but say that's the worst week? I tried to mute every word that was, you know, Rhea or Sushant saying, and somehow it keeps slipping through the cracks in my filters. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, I... Uh, sadly, this is affecting real lives and not just uh, not just entertainment for a few people. Shatanan, you have the last word. So I actually have the exact, you know, the same thought, but let me uh, put it somewhat less delicately than uh, Tanvi and say that, you know, I think that it was... Those are the roles we play. Our listeners count on you to be um, blunt. I, I think the worst week was Arnab Goswami. And I think that increasingly it is difficult for him to maintain the pretense that he represents some kind of crusading journalism when it is uh, clear that he, in fact, represents moral rot. And, uh, you know, the number of people I've sort of, you know, the people in India I've heard from and people are the way people are sort of talking about this, I really think that there's a, a, a at least among a section of people, that there's a sort of, you know, a, a tipping point and a sense that, um, you know, this is uh, truly disgusting. And the way they have hounded uh, this young woman, Rhea Chakraborty, the complete lack of ethics, the scarlessness, the the, uh, 
putting rumors out on national television, everybody and his uncle having a, a right to comment on it and an opinion, um, the ambushing of, of, of uh, postmen and all the, all the rest of it, that, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a rot at the heart of it. And uh, I think he has, for many people, come quite clearly to symbolize that rot. Well, uh, there's not much I can add to that. So let me thank you both for coming. Sadan and Dume of the American Enterprise Institute and the Wall Street Journal, Tanvi Madan of the Brookings Institution. Guys, it's always a pleasure to have you. Let's do maybe one more of these around election time. I, I, I have a sense that we will have a, a lot more to discuss, particularly because it'll be an election month and not an election day. So um, we, we won't have any time constraints. Um, good to see you guys virtually, uh, alas, but um, thanks for making time. Good to be back. Thanks, Moon. Kranthamasha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. This podcast is an HT Smartcast original and is available on htsmartcast.com, India's fastest growing podcasting producing platform. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we referenced on this week's episode, visit our website, grantthamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Jonathan Kay. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Maya Krishna Rogers is our executive producer. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.